welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. Welcome back, everybody. You heard last week's episode. You sure did. And you came back for this week's episode. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome. Uh, Now, as you know, uh, we are currently deep in, like waist deep in the trenches of Dictator December. Uh, which I think, you know what, when I was coming up with the tune for that, mm-hmm. I wanted it to be, you know, because it was Gestember. You just wanted to sing the horn part. You know what, the horn part came later. It was a, <laughs> is an inspiration. Um, and uh, mythology may. And I felt like we needed something like jazzier, okay. you know, something yeah. that felt like a like a commercial, like like for, like a local furniture like ad, a, a local furniture ad. Yeah. So that's why we went. I I there's went like with, a butterfly that flies across <laughs> underneath the name, and then yeah, yeah, and then it lands at the end, and mm-hmm. then it becomes part of the logo. Yeah. I watch a lot of TV. Um. So, uh, going on to our uh, like more World War Two era dictators. Awful person number two. Awful person number two of December. Uh, El Caudillo. Francisco Franco. I'm the bad guy. Duh. So, Francisco Franco, in full, Francisco Paulino Hermenegildo Teodoro Franco Baamonde. Was what was born- the third name? The <laughs> no, third I'm kidding, name? I'm kidding. Teodoro? <laughs> Franco Baamonde. Uh, so, I'm... I'm doing a lot of uh, Spanish today, but um, forgive me for saying my Spanish in an Italian accent to all our Spanish listeners out there. Um, So, uh, Franco was born in the coastal city and naval center of El Ferrol in Galicia, which is in northwestern Spain in 1892. Uh, His family life was not entirely happy for Franco's father, an officer in the Spanish Naval Administrative Corps, was eccentric wasteful and somewhat of a degenerate was he also an alcoholic who beat uh, his wife yes. and kids as a matter of fact he was an alcoholic oh, great. so um we're getting a little bit of a mm, a theme mm-hmm. uh of the fathers of dictators so men be, be kind good. be kind to your children please or else we're all screwed in a major way so Franco specifically was more disciplined and serious than other boys his age, but he was close to his mother, a pious and conservative upper middle class Roman Catholic. So when Franco was 14, his father moved away to Madrid after receiving a reassignment there, and then he would ultimately abandon his family and marry another woman. Cool, cool, cool. Mm-hmm. While Franco did not suffer any great abuse at his father's hand, he would never o- overcome his hostility for his father and largely ignored him for the rest of his life. Okay. Um, years after becoming dictator, Franco wrote a brief novel called Raza under the pseudonym Jaime de Andrade, whose protagonist is believed to represent the idealized man Franco wished his father had been. Raza, as a matter of fact, R-A-Z-A, um, is his novel and it, it translates as race. Okay. Hmm. Um, conversely, fa- uh, Franco strongly identified with his mother, um, who I always wore widow's black when she realized her husband had abandoned her. So she was definitely like a super chill, not dramatic person. Um, and he learned from her moderation, austerity, self-control, family solidarity, and respect for Catholicism, though he would also inherit his father's harshness, coldness, and implacability. Um, that is what we in the theater world call foreshadowing. Oh, was he the only child? Uh, he had an older brother. <laughs> 
Learn, just learn that. Uh, <laughs> just, just learn that. Wow. Well, he never mentions his brother again, okay. like ever. Um, like four generations and his elder brother before him, Franco was originally destined for a career as a naval officer. Um, however, the economic and territorial aftermath of the Spanish-American War led to a reduction in the Navy, which forced him to choose the Army. Ugh. Ugh. So in 1907, only 14 years old, he entered into the Infantry Academy at Toledo. Well, I could see, like, if you were going to join the Navy, yeah. you didn't have to, like, walk around a lot. No. You could just stand on that ship yeah. and let the water do the work. <laughs> Whereas if you're in the Army... <laughs> Do you think that's what the Navy is? Boy, go stand on that ship. Let that water do the work. Just shoot your gun. I mean, I don't know anything about the military. And so help me God, do not tweet at me and tell me what. Spanish Navy in 1900. Oh, yeah. Feels like it would have been an easier job than than marching. I'm not going to argue with you. Yes, I agree. It seemed like he was choosing the, the harsher of the two, being only 14 years old. But this was kind of his thing anyway. So he was one of the youngest uh, members of his class, with most boys being between 16 and 18. Okay. Um, he was quite short. Oh, yeah. Another thing. And was bullied for his small size. Huh. What a thing. So, so far we're, we're meeting like a, a weird dictator like a mirror trifecta. image. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of short, had a terrible father. And bullied by a young age. Mm-hmm. So he graduated three years later with below average marks. Oof. Mostly because, because he was very young. Because he was very young. And also because he was so small, he couldn't pass a lot of like the physical requirements. He couldn't like climb over the wall or whatever they make him do. Who knows what they made him do in the early 20th century. So he volunteered for active duty in the colonial campaigns in Spanish Morocco that had begun in 1909 and was transferred there in 1912 at age 19. And the following year, he was promoted to the first lieutenant in the elite regiment of native Moroccan cavalry. And at a time in which many Spanish officers were characterized by sloppiness and lack of professionalism, young Franco quickly showed his ability to command troops effectively and soon won a reputation for complete professional dedication. So he was not, shall we say, a good time guy. Okay. Real Very stickler. serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stickler for rules. Um, He devoted great care to the preparation of his unit's actions and paid more attention than was common to the troops' well-being. This would be the last time he would care about anybody's (laughs) well-being. Reputed to be scrupulously honest, introverted, and a man of comparatively few intimate friends, he was known to shun all frivolous amusements. Yeah. I wonder if that Catholic upbringing had anything anything to do do with with that. Probably not. Uh, In 1915, at age 22, he became the youngest captain in the Spanish army. And in 1916, he was shot by enemy machine gun fire. He was badly wounded in the abdomen, specifically the liver, um, in a skirmish at El Biutz and possibly lost a testicle. And the physicians of the battle later concluded that his intestines were spared because he had inhaled the moment he was shot. (gasps) So because he inhaled as the bullet went in, the suction of his lungs, like the draw of his lungs up, like pulled the bullet away from that's his pretty crazy isn't that crazy i didn't know that was a thing wow um so because of this his survival marked him permanently in the eyes of the native troops as a man of what's known as baraka which is good luck so one one involuntary breath movement yep. when he was like oh, i'm getting shot and yeah whew, yep all of spain really went 
downhill from there. Uh, he was recommended for Spain's highest honor for gallantry, which was the coveted Cruz Larreda de San Fernando, but instead received the cross of Maria Cristina first class. Um, so he became a hero. <clears throat> So with that, he was promoted to major at the end of February 1917 at age 24. This made him the youngest major in the Spanish army. And that year, he also married a woman named Carmen Polo, which whom he had a daughter whose name was Maria del Carmen. And Franco would have a close relationship with his daughter and was a proud parent, though his traditionalist attitudes and increasing responsibilities meant he left much of the child rearing to his wife. I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in 1926, at age 33, he was promoted to brigadier general. Uh, this made him the youngest general in Spain, and perhaps along with Major General Joe Sweeney of the Irish Army, one of the youngest generals in Europe. Wow. Um, and at the beginning of 1928, he was named director of the newly organized General Military Academy in Zaragoza, a new college for all army cadets, replacing the former separate institutions for young men seeking to become officers in infantry, cavalry, artillery, and other branches of the army. And Franco was removed as director of the Zaragoza Military Academy in 1931. And about 95% of his former Zaragoza cadets later came to side with him in the Civil War. Mm. So he, as someone who was so austere and didn't have a lot of friends, he he managed to kind of uh, cultivate a cult of personality. Okay. So in April 1931, general elections led to the ousting of King Alfonso XIII, whose military dictatorship had been in place since the early 1920s. Mm -hmm. So sidebar, something you got to understand about Spain during like basically all of like Spanish history is that especially during this time, there's a lot of, um, especially in Europe and in Russia, as you mentioned Mm -hmm. in your episode last week, there was a lot of infighting between, there was the um, highly conservative monarchy nationalist group that was backed by the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And this was the government that was in place um, under the monarchy of King Alfonso the 13th. However, there was another like faction that was brewing that was sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. That was very communist leaning, very left wanted to like tear down the influence of the Catholic church and also get rid of the monarchy. They wanted more of a egalitarian state. Mm -hmm. So, because Spain is not huge, right? Uh, there was a lot of back and forth during this time period of they would have elections and then the right would win and then they would have elections again and then the left would win. And so it was like back and forth for a long time. And um, so nothing really happened. Nothing really happened. But like the factions kind of solidified and yeah. hardened in their differences. And that caused a lot of conflict. Interesting. Yes. I wonder... Hmm, if we could learn from something like You'd that. You'd think, yeah. Mm, mm, who knows? You know what they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So, um, I never heard <laughs> that You never before. heard that? No. Oh, it's very good. I didn't come up with it. It's something that's like real that someone said. Someone more important than I am. But anyway, so 31, they had general elections and they got rid of the monarchy. Um, Franco specifically did not take any notable stand. He was just mm-hmm. kind of like, Franco's good out here. Uh, The left-leaning moderate government of the Second Republic that replaced it led to a reduction in the power of the military. They were like, well, the military is just the arm of this nationalist state, which resulted in the closing of Franco's military academy, as mentioned before. So for six months, Franco was without a post and under surveillance. And that's like all he's ever known, too. Oh, yeah. Like, the military is just like his thing. So he was not thrilled with this. So during this time period, he was a subscriber to the journal of Acción Española 
which is a monarchist organization and a firm believer in the Jewish Masonic Bolshevik conspiracy of Contorbernio, which means filthy cohabitation. Jeez. So Contorbernio was one of Franco's favorite words. Okay. It's, th- it's basically a conspiracy in which Jews, Freemasons, communists, and other leftists alike allegedly sought the destruction of Christian Europe with Spain as the principal target. Oh, well. So it's this crazy <laughs> conspiracy, and he was like, he ate it up, loved it so much. Because, you know, it it like tickled the right parts of his like weird right. obsessions with these things. Mm-hmm. So, however... Spain, the country, was also wracked by a deepening, often violent social and political unrest. And when new elections were held in 1933, the Second Republic, which was kind of the left-leaning government, was replaced by a more right-leaning government. So this happened again just a couple Mm -hmm. years later. So as a result, Franco returned to a position of power in which he wielded the following uh, year into a ruthless suppression of the leftist revolt in northwest Spain. He said he was prepared to use, quote, troops against Spanish civilians as if they were a foreign enemy. Oh, yeah. I am again seeing shades uh, yeah. of Uncle Joe. Yeah, right? Here. Uncle Joe. Good old Uncle Joe. So Franco described the rebellion to a journalist in Oviedo as, quote, a frontier war and its fronts are socialism, communism, and whatever attacks civilization in order to replace it with barbarism. So, yes. however, like the Second Republic before it, the new government could do little to quell the growing divide between left and right-leading factions. And when elections that were held in February 1936 led to a shift in power to the left again, mm-hmm. Spain slipped further into chaos. Um, and for his part, Franco was once again marginalized with a new posting to the Canary Islands. So they like sent him out. <laughs> so though Franco, quote unquote, accepted what amounted to banishment with the professionalism for which he was known, mm-hmm. other high ranking members who sympathized with him began to discuss a coup okay so um though he initially kept his distance from the plot on july 18th 1936 franco announced the nationalist manifesto in a broadcast from the canary islands as the uprising began in the northwest of spain the next day he flew to morocco to take control of the troops and shortly thereafter gained the support of both nazi germany and fascist italy Hikes. Yep, whose planes were used to shuttle Franco and his forces to Spain. You mentioned this very briefly in mm-hmm. your description of how where Stalin was and all mm-hmm. of this. Um, establishing his base of operations in Sevilla the following month, Franco began his military campaign advancing north toward the seat of the Republican government in Madrid. And anticipating a swift victory on October 1st, 1936, the Nationalist forces declared Franco head of the government and commander-in-chief of the armed forces. However, when the initial assault on Madrid was repelled, the military coup evolved into the protracted conflict known as the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War has frequently been called the dress rehearsal for World War II. (sighs) So it's like little World War II fought on European soil. all on Spain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So over the next three years, the nationalist forces, led by Franco and backed by right-wing militias, the Catholic Church, Germany, and Italy, battled the left-wing Republicans who received aid from the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. and Stalin, as well as brigades of foreign volunteers. Though the Republicans were able to resist the national advance for a time with far superior military strength, Franco and his forces were able to systematically defeat them, eliminating their opposition region by region. So he just like went from Spanish region to Spanish region, just like crushing the the left- the own people of yes, Spain. Yes, his own people of Spain. Yep. Mm-hmm. So on October 1st, 1936, in Burgos, Franco was publicly proclaimed as Generalissimo of the National Army and Jefe de Estado, which is head of state. 
So by the end of 1937, Franco had conquered the Basque lands and the Asturias and had also combined the fascist and monarchist political parties to form his Falange Española Tradicionalista while dissolving all others, also known as the Falange or Phalanx. Okay. So from here on on, when I say Falange like that um, in my beautiful <laughs> oh, so Spanish sexy. accent, uh, that is his, his political party. Okay. Um, in January 1939, the Republican stronghold of Barcelona fell to the nationalists. <laughs> She's laughing at me. That's how you pronounce it <laughs> in Spain, Spanish. Barcelona and also Ibiza. FYI. Um, Barcelona fell to the nationalists, followed two months later by Madrid. And on April 1st, 1939, after receiving an unconditional surrender, Franco announced the end of the Spanish Civil War. Okay. He was like, it's done. I won. Everyone shut up. So sources vary. But many estimate the number of casualties resulting from the war as high as 500,000, with perhaps as many as 200,000 the result of executions perpetrated by Franco and his forces. So, on paper, Franco had more power than any Spanish leader before or since. Wow. Yeah. For the first four years after taking Madrid, he ruled almost exclusively by decree. The law of the head of state passed in August 1939 permanently confided all government power to Franco. He was not required to even consult the cabinet for most legislation or decrees. So he could be like, I'm having a really rough morning. Yep. Uh, I can't believe that horse cut me off in traffic. Yep. Horses are illegal. Yeah. And everyone's like, it's decided. Okay. Horses illegal. Yeah. According to historians, Franco possessed far more day-to-day power than Hitler or Stalin possessed at their their respective heights of their power. Yeah. So historians note that while Hitler and Stalin maintained rubber stamp parliaments, he had, they had at least like the impression that there, that there was were other, other people, people involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was not the case in Spain in the early years after the war, which is a situation that nominally made Franco's regime, quote, the most purely arbitrary in the world. Because it's just one guy making decisions. Mm-hmm. Any mention of uh, failing at a weatherman academy? Oh, um, no. I think Franco just always wanted to be a power-hungry military uh, leader. So (laughs) that's good, I guess. Just like single-minded focus. Reach for the stars. Yeah, reach for the stars. And you too can be just like Francisco Franco. No, don't. Please don't. So for nearly four decades following the conflict, Franco, who became known as El Codillo, which means the leader, but in like more direct translation means like tree trunk. So like the base like the the solid okay. core of the country. He would rule Spain through a repressive dictatorship. Immediately following the war, military tribunals were held that led to tens of thousands more being executed or imprisoned. Franco also outlawed unions and all religions except for Catholicism, as well as banning the Catalan and Basque languages. And to enforce his power over Spain, he established a vast network of secret police, which seems to be... Every dictator's just gotta do it. Yeah, accessory. Did he let people leave the country? He did at uh, he did at first before he became like he really like solidified yeah. his power. Okay, and I mean we'll talk about it in a little bit, but after a while he kind of like relaxed a little bit, okay. especially in like the sixties when like the world was much different than when he had. Oh my gosh, Holy it's crazy. Crap. Yeah. Okay. So. Although Franco had visions of restoring Spanish grandeur after the Civil War, in reality, he was a leader of an exhausted country still divided internally and impoverished by a long and costly war. So the stability of his government was made more precarious by the outbreak of World War II only five months after he gained power. Yeah. 
So despite his sympathy for the Axis powers' new order, Franco at first declared Spanish neutrality in the conflict. He was like, "Thanks for all your planes and stuff, but we're gonna we're gonna stay here. here on this peninsula." So his policy changed after the fall of France in June 1940 when he approached Hitler. Uh, Franco indicated his willingness to bring Spain into the war on Germany's side in exchange for extensive German military and economic assistance and the cession of Spain of most of France's territorial holdings in Northwest Africa. So Hitler was either unable or unwilling to meet this price. And after meeting with Franco in France in October 1940, Hitler remarked that he would, quote, as soon have three or four teeth pulled out as go through another bargaining session like that again. Oh, my God. So when Hitler is like, I don't ever want to talk to this asshole ever again, then you're a really big asshole. Oh, my God. (laughs) Then you're bad. You're the worst. (laughs) <laughs> I'm certainly not saying that Franco was worse than Hitler. It's just different flavors of yeah, awful. We yeah. can, we, who are we? Yeah, who are we? Nobody. So Franco's government thenceforth remained relatively sympathetic to the Axis powers while carefully avoiding any direct diplomatic and military commitment to them. This would, this would be beneficial to them to at least a certain degree at the end right. of the war. But we'll get into that. Let's talk a little bit about Jews and Franco with Spain. Oh, great. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, Spain provided visas for thousands of French Jews to transit Spain and route to Portugal to escape the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Spanish diplomats protected about 4,000 Jews living in Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and Austria. At least some 20,000 to 30,000 Jews were allowed to pass through Spain in the first half of the war. And Jews who were not allowed to enter Spain, however, were spent to the Miranda de Ebro concentration camp or deported to France. Okay. So in January 1943, after the German embassy in Spain told Spanish government that it had two months to remove its Jewish citizens from Western Europe, Spain severely limited visas and only 800 Jews were allowed to enter the country. After the war, Franco exaggerated his contribution in helping to save Jews in order to end Spain's isolation and to improve Spain's image in the world. Um, After the war, the Spanish government tried to destroy all evidence of its cooperation with the Axis powers. In 2010, documents were discovered showing that on May 13, 1941, Franco ordered his provincial governors to compile a list of Jews while he negotiated an alliance with the Axis powers. Franco supplied Heinrich Himmler, architect of the Nazis' final solution, with a list of 6,000 Jews in Spain. After the war, Franco allowed many former Nazis, such as Otto Skorzeny and Leon de Grel and other former fascists, to flee to Spain. So he was like, see what I did? I let all these Jews like leave and I like help them escape Like don't be mad at us. Yeah. But he definitely was like, hey guys, I've got this list and you should definitely come in here and take them. So. Archives. Yeah. Archives. Doing the Lord's work. So when the tide of war began to turn against the Axis powers in 1943, Franco once more declared Spain's neutrality. (laughs) He was like, oh, still not. Nope. Don't look at us. Uh, But in the aftermath of the conflict, his former allegiances were not forgotten. Mm -hmm. As a result, Spain was ostracized by the United Nations, placing a significant economic strain on the country. So on July 26, 1947, Franco proclaimed Spain a monarchy. He did not designate a monarch. Uh, This gesture was largely done to appease the monarchists in the Movimiento Nacional, which is a political party that was all about just like, we want to bring back a king. Okay. Uh, Franco left the throne vacant until 1969, proclaiming himself as de facto regent for life. And at the same time, Franco appropriated many of the privileges of a king. He wore the uniform of a captain general, which is a rank traditionally reserved for a king. 
uh, resided in the El Pardo Palace, which was oh, where all of the Spanish the kings, kings would live. live. Mm-hmm. In addition, he began walking under a canopy, and his portrait appeared on most Spanish coins and postage stamps. Hmm. He also added, by the grace of God, a phrase usually part of the styles of monarchs, to his style. Yeah. So although Franco and Spain under his rule adopted some trappings of fascism, he and Spain under his rule are generally not considered to be fascist. Okay. So this is just semantics. It was Italy. Yes. Italy, Italy, Italy was loved it. fascist. So among the distinctions, fascism entails a revolutionary aim to transform society, where Franco did not seek to do so, and to the contrary, although authoritarian, he was by nature conservative and traditional. Okay. The few consistent points in Franco's long rule were above all authoritarianism, nationalism, Catholicism, anti-Freemasonry, and anti-communism. So not by definition a fascist, still super bad guy. So circumstances changed, however, with the advent of the Cold War. Franco's status as a staunch anti-communist led to economic and military assistance from the United States in exchange for the establishment of military bases in Spain. This historic alliance commenced with the visit of U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower to Spain in 1953, which resulted in the Pact of Madrid. Spain was then admitted into the United Nations in 1955, and American military facilities in Spain built since then included Naval Station Rota, Moron Air Base, and Torrejon Air Base. So, let's talk about women in Franco as Spain. Oh, please. Yeah. So, Francoism professed a devotion to the traditional role of a woman in society— That it is being a loving daughter and sister to her parents and brothers, being a faithful wife to her husband, and residing with her family. Official propaganda confined the role of women to family care and motherhood. Immediately after the war, most progressive laws passed by the Republic aimed at equality between the sexes were nullified. Women could not become judges or testify in a trial. They could not become university professors. Their affairs and economic lives had to be managed by their fathers and husbands. And until the 1970s, a woman could not have a bank account without a co-sign by her father or husband. Uh, later, um, in the later 1970s, these restrictions were somewhat relaxed, but this was the case for a very long time. Um, Franco's domestic policies became somewhat more liberal during the 1950s and 60s, and the continuity of his regime, together with its capacity for creative evolution, won him at least a limited degree of respect for some of his critics. So, so they forgot about all the bad stuff? Yeah, they were like, oh, well, he's letting us, you know, they were under, like, his, like, fist for so long that he was like, all right, women can open up a bank account, and they are like, oh, my God, he's so great. Benevolent um, leader. Yeah. Uh, he said that he did not find the burden of government particularly heavy. And in fact, his rule was marked by an, by absolute self-confidence and relative indifference to criticism. Uh, he demonstrated marked political ability engaging the psychology of the diverse elements ranging from moderate liberals to extreme reactionaries whose support was necessary for his regime's survival. So he was able to kind of like read the room and like tell people what they wanted to hear. Um, enough so that he didn't really have any like there wasn't any conflict like nobody was trying for a coup everyone was just kind of like yep this is franco spain this is what we do uh he maintained a careful balance among them and largely left the execution of policy to his appointees thereby placing himself as arbiter above the storm of ordinary political conflict to a considerable degree the blame for unsuccessful or unpopular policies tended to fall on individual ministers rather than on franco okay so uh, the Falange State Party downgraded in the early 1940s and later years became known merely as the movement and lost much of its original quasi-fascist identity. 
1967, he opened direct elections for a small minority of deputies to the parliament, and in 1969 officially designated the then 32-year-old Prince Juan Carlos, the eldest son of the nominal pretender to the Spanish throne, as his official successor upon his death. Okay. Franco resigned his position of premier in 1973, but retained his functions as head of state, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and head of the movement. So not a, not a full retirement. No, not a full retirement. Um, he was never a popular ruler, however, and rarely tried to mobilize mass support. Mm-hmm. So he didn't care about being liked that much. No. Um, but after 1947, there was little direct or organized opposition to his rule. And with the liberalization of his government and relaxation of some police powers together with the country's marked economic development during the 1960s, Franco's image changed from that of the rigorous generalissimo to a more benign civilian elder statesman. So it's kind of like Grandpa Franco. Okay. Like this, like, kind of figurehead person. Um, His health declined markedly in the late 1960s, yet he professed to believe that he had left Spain's affairs, quote, tied and well tied, and that after his death, Prince Juan Carlos would maintain at least the basic structure of his regime. On July 19th, 1974, the aged Franco fell ill from various health problems, and Juan Carlos took over as acting head of state. Franco soon recovered, and on September 2nd, he resumed his duties as head of state. A year later, he fell ill again, afflicted with further health issues, including a long battle with Parkinson's disease. And Franco's last public appearance was on October 1st, 1975, when despite his gaunt and frail appearance, he gave a speech to crowds from the balcony at the Royal Palace of El Pardo in Madrid. On October 30th, 1975, he fell into a coma and was put on life support. And Franco's family agreed to disconnect the life support machines. Officially, he died a few minutes after midnight on November 20th, 1975 from heart failure at age 82. That's so much longer than I thought he was around. Yes, it's crazy. And my coworker, El Mudena, is from Spain. Mm -hmm. And she was giving me like some insider, like this is how it felt to like live under like just the last parts of Franco with Spain. So it's interesting. But... Um, Juan Carlos was proclaimed king two days later. Right. Uh, however, Juan Carlos set about dismantling Spain's authoritarian apparatus and reintroduced political parties. And in June 1977, the first elections were held since 1936. And Spain has remained a democracy ever since. So, Franco's body was interred at Valle de los Caídos, which is a valley of the fallen, in a massive mausoleum, a colossal memorial built by the forced labor of political prisoners in order to honor the casualties of both sides of the Spanish Civil War. So to add insult to injury, he buried himself with all of the people that he basically killed. Yeah. Like, you guys fight. Yeah. And then that was built by the people that he forced to build it and then erected a gigantic mausoleum and then laid his body there which is just like the worst thing so the site was designated by the interim government assured by prince juan carlos and prime minister carlos arias navarro as the burial place for franco according to his family franco did not want to be buried in the valley but in the Elmudena cathedral in madrid wow yeah Nevertheless, the family agreed to the interim government's request to bury him in the valley, and they have stood by the decision. Okay. Um, This made Franco the only person interred in the valley who did not die during the Civil War. Gosh. Uh, His funeral was attended by Prince Rainier III of Monaco and Chilean dictator General Augusto Pinochet, who revered Franco and modeled his leadership style on the Spanish leader. Yeah. Former U.S. President Richard Nixon called Franco, quote, a loyal friend and ally of the United States. Yeesh. So, 
Uh, Though some have chosen not to look closely at the years of Franco's ascension and rule, many Spanish citizens have continued to push for the exhumation of mass graves, with the UN calling for an investigation into the whereabouts of those who went missing during the years of the conflict as well. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists have tried for some time to locate the remains of poet-playwright Federico Garcia Lorca, who was executed by Granada-based right-wing forces in 1936. They can't find his body. So on May 11th, 2017, the Congress of Deputies approved by 198 to 1 with 140 abstentions, a motion driven by the Socialist Workers Party ordering the government to exhume Franco's remains. Ooh. On August 24th, 2018, the government of Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez approved legal amendments to the historical memory law, stating that only those who died during the Civil War would be buried at the Valle de los Queidos, resulting in plans to exhume Franco's remains for reburial elsewhere. Deputy Prime Minister Carmen Calvo Boyato states that having Franco buried at the monument, quote, shows a lack of respect for the victims buried there. The government gave Franco's family a 15-day deadline to decide Franco's final resting place, or else a dignified place would be chosen by the government. Franco's family, as you could imagine, opposed the exhumation and attempted to prevent it by making appeals to the to the government mm-hmm. court. Uh, the family expressed its wish that Franco's remains be reinterred with full military honors at the Elmudena Cathedral in the center of Madrid, the burial place he had originally wanted. Um, but the demand was rejected by the Spanish government, which issued another 15-day deadline to choose another site. Because the family refused to choose another location, the Spanish government ultimately chose to rebury Franco at the Mingo Rubio Cemetery in El Pardo, where his wife Carmen Polo and a number of Francoist officials are buried. And after many legal delays, on October 24th, 2019, which is like less than a month ago, Uh well, less than a month ago when we're recording it now, his remains were moved to his wife's mausoleum, which is located in the Mingo Rubio Cemetery and buried in a private ceremony. So maybe if his wife hadn't been buried in that cemetery, the government just would have been like, "Where are there some woods somewhere? <laughs> yeah, like, can we just dump these bones somewhere? But apparently this was going on, like since the day he died, people were like, why are you burying him in the Valle de las Caídas? Yeah. Like this is insane. Um, and especially since a lot of the bodies that are interred there are just, it's just like a pile of bodies. Right. Like there's no place, there's no grave, there's, there's no, no grave marking. markers, nothing. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just like, why would you bury this man on top of all of these people who he basically murdered? Oh my God. So in Spain, what are like a power move. I know. Right. He's such a dick in death too. Yeah. In death. So in Spain and abroad, the legacy of Franco remains controversial. The longevity of Franco's rule, his suppression of opposition, and the effective propaganda sustained through the years have made a detached evaluation difficult. For almost 40 years, Spaniards, and particularly children at school, were told that divine providence had set Franco to save Spain from chaos, atheism, and poverty. So, a highly controversial figure within Spain, Franco was seen as a divisive leader. Supporters yeah. credit him for keeping Spain neutral and uninvaded in World War II, which, debatable, they emphasize his strong anti-communist and nationalist views, economic policies, and opposition to socialism as major factors in Spain's post-war economic success and later international integration. Abroad, he had support from Winston Churchill and many American Catholics, but was strongly opposed by Roosevelt and your boy Harry Thank S. You. Truman and his administration. Uh, conversely, critics on the left have denounced him as a tyrant responsible for thousands of deaths and years long political repression and have called him complicit in atrocities committed by Axis forces during World War II due to his support of Axis governments. Mm-hmm. When he died in 1975, the major parties of the left and the right agreed to follow the, quote, pact of forgetting. 
in order to secure the transition to democracy. They agreed to not have any investigations or prosecutions dealing with the Civil War or Franco. The agreement effectively lapsed after 2000, um, the year the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory was founded and the public debate started. In 2006, a poll indicated that almost two-thirds of Spaniards favor a fresh investigation into the war. So when I talked to El Modena about Mm -hmm. this, she said, Franco is Spain. Spain in general is, um, is a very unique situation because a lot of dictators around the world either are like... They're destroyed by a war. Yeah. There's a coup and someone else rises to power. You know, there's there's always like an end. Someone like, poisons them. Someone poisons them. Something like that. There's always an end to it. But Franco just died. And then his all of the people that were his political allies, he just like inserted them into government. And yeah. then they just kept it going. And just because they let democracy happen again they just kind of were all like all right let's just agree that this happened and we're not going to talk about it and like let's just move forward because we're okay in the, in the world now and we don't have to worry about another war like let's just forget about it wow. so there's still a lot of um unresolved tension mm-hmm. uh and especially now now that nationalism is now back nazism is back in the world that um, this kind of conflict again is arising in Spain because it was never truly like resolved politically or socially, really. Yeah, that's crazy to think um, about in Spain. Like yeah, it's really crazy. So now, like, just after two thousand, where they are, there more people like publicly saying, "No, we need to talk about mm-hmm. this and we need to like resolve these issues." So things are happening. One of them is uh, exhuming his body and like moving it, which is great. However. The accumulated wealth of Franco's family, including much real estate inherited from Franco because his family was fairly wealthy, and its provenance, have also become matters of public discussion. Estimates of the family's wealth have ranged from 350 million to 600 million euros. And while Franco was dying, the Francoist government voted a large public pension for his wife, Carmen Polo, which in the later Democratic governments kept paying. Whoa. So at the time of her death in 1988, Carmen Polo was receiving as a pension more than 12.5 million pesetas, which is 4 million more than the salary of Felipe Gonzalez, then the head of the government. <laughs> so now Spaniards who suffered under Franco's rule have sought to remove memorials of his regime. Mm-hmm. Most government buildings and streets that were named after Franco during his rule have been reverted to their original names. And owing to Franco's human rights record, the Spanish government in 2007 banned all official public references to the Franco regime and began the removal of all statues, street names, and memorials associated with the regime, with the last statue reportedly being removed in 2008 in the city of Santander. Churches that retained plaques commemorating Franco and the victims of his Republican opponents may lose state aid. And since 1978, the national anthem of Spain, which is called the Marca Real, does not include lyrics introduced by Franco. However, attempts to give the national anthem new lyrics have failed due to lack of consensus. Yeah, it's one of the only national anthems that doesn't have lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody's like, uh, that's interesting. So just, you just hum along. So it used to have words, and then they were like, let's Ugh, just take these let's just out. Do this. Because it was probably like, Franco is the best, and we love him. <laughs> yeah, he was sent by God to destroy the <laughs> infidels. Um, and now, and now at like I'm assuming hockey games in Spain. Uh, everyone just hums along because there's no <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Um, in March 2006, the Permanent Commission of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe unanimously adopted a resolution, quote, firmly condemning the multiple and serious violations of human rights committed in Spain under the Francoist regime from 1939 to 1975. The resolution also urged that historians, professional and amateur, be given access to the various archives of the Francoist regime, including those of, up. of the private Francisco Franco National Foundation, the FNFF, which, according with other Francoist archives, remain inaccessible to the public as of 2006. Mm. The FNFF received various archives from the El Pardo Palace and is alleged to have sold some of them to private individuals. Oh, I don't like that. Nope, no good. Uh, furthermore, the resolution urged the Spanish authorities to set up an underground exhibit in the Valle de los Caídos monument to explain the, quote, terrible conditions in which it was built. So Spain has a long, long way to go uh, in the realm of, like, remembering, mm-hmm. but also, like, remembering accurately and, like, dealing with the issues of Franco with Spain because um, there's still a lot that people and some people remember things differently. Yes. Uh, so it's difficult and, uh, Almu has really opened my eyes to that. So that was, uh, Francisco Franco. Um, in my archives class that I teach, I do a week on records as social memory. Um, and there was a case a couple years ago that a, you know, national public television station in South America Mm -hmm. aired this like 12 episode series that was that was fiction but based on true stories of what happened under the Pinochet dictatorship oh yeah um and so it talked about the people that were um the people that were executed and the people that were tortured and mm-hmm. how nobody reported on it at the time when yeah. it was happening and no one talks about it now mm-hmm. so they based a lot of this off stuff that they found in in a Catholic archives in yeah. the area and um, provided resources for people who were interested in these stories to like go to the website mm-hmm. and you can look it up and now these records are open and you can talk to you can talk about them and so this like really instilled like a, a newfound interest um, from the younger generations oh, because sure. they weren't necessarily alive when all of this was happening but they affect they experienced the trickle down effects of all of that yeah, absolutely um, because nobody talked about it they just knew like some bad stuff happened and a lot of people died but we don't talk about it exactly and so like having this be on like the national like their public television station and like being given access to more information has really created like a dialogue and has created people opening up and talking more about these atrocities that happened and Mm -hmm. it's it's very interesting to learn about it's astounding like uh I mean, if I've learned anything, it's that, um, what is it? Daylight is the best cleaner or the best disinfectant. You're throwing so many, so many axioms at me today that I've never heard of before. Adage after adage. Yeah. Daylight is the best disinfectant. That's it. So this idea of like, you can't hide things forever, especially Uh things that like thousands of people knew, knew about and thousands of people were affected by hundreds of thousands of people were affected by. And even if like a bunch of guys in a room are like, all right, we're just going to forget, right? We're all, we all agreed to forget. No one Mm -hmm. is going to forget. And if you instill that you're not any, you're not any better than the original regime. So you might as well get it all out in the open and start to talk about that kind of terrible political history of your country. And that's how you get to be better. So Spain. Spain. A beautiful country, and they love their jamón. That's ham in Spanish. Um, 
<laughs> Thank you. You're Lauren. welcome. I apologize to all Spanish speakers who are listening. I think to you did episode. a great job. Oh, thanks. It was much better than I would have done with my oh. French accent. So. Uh, I think my favorite word is uh, hermana Gildo. So one of his middle names. So my quiz today, a little bit lighter, a little bit nicer. Mm-hmm. Francisco and Frank O, a quiz on San Francisco and famous guys named Frank. Question number one. This free snack slash dessert usually comes with your takeout, but in fact was invented by Japanese residents of San Francisco. Consult your lucky number and tell me what I'm talking about. Question number two. In 2007, Frank Langella won a Tony Award for playing a distinctive, real-life, but very dead character in a two-man interview-based play. He went on to play the same character in the movie version and garnered an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. What is the name of this slash play and film? Question number three. This famous tax evader and gangster was held at Alcatraz for a time and gave regular Sunday concerts with his inmate band known as the Rock Islanders. Who is this sneering prisoner? Question number four. This singer, songwriter, rapper, and record producer, no word on if he's ever surfed, blew up in 2012 after his solo debut, Channel Orange, debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 200 and won a Grammy for it. His long-delayed sophomore album, Blonde, came out in 2016. Who am I talking about? Question number five. Within 10 years, when was the Great San Francisco Earthquake? It was one of the worst and deadliest earthquakes in the history of the United States. Question number six. True or false, director and puppeteer Frank Oz is the voice of my favorite Muppet, Pepe the King Prawn. Question number seven. A lot of pithy, snarky quotes have been attributed to this writer and official angry old man, but in fact, he never actually said the following. Quote, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Who am I talking about? Question number eight. Name this electrifying bad boy of American rock who produced nearly all of his 60-plus albums over the course of a 30-year career, both solo and with his band, The Mothers of Invention. In 2004, Rolling Stone magazine ranked him at number 71 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time, and in 2011 at number 22 on its list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Question number nine. San Francisco has long had an LGBTQ plus friendly history. It was home for the first lesbian rights organization in the United States, Daughters of Belitis, and the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California, Harvey Milk. It also has one of the first and most famous gay neighborhoods in the U.S., which Fidel is probably mad about. What is the name of this symbolic gayborhood? And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name four famous songs, and you're going to tell me if Frank Sinatra made them famous or not. Number one, Fly Me to the Moon. Number two, Valare. Number three, My Way. And number four, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. We'll give you a minute to think about it. We'll be right back with your answers. San Francisco, open your doors and gave you not my body way outside your door. San Francisco, Other places only make me love you best. Tell me you're the one you're going with. I'm coming home again, never to roam again, never to roam again. 
This is wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm, I was very proud of this. Steve helped me with the, uh, he likes to do, he likes to do the breakout of the name. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the two kinds. He likes to tell you what you're going to write the quiz yes, about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's his favorite thing. All right. Question number one. This free snack slash dessert usually comes with your takeout, but in fact was invented by Japanese residents of San Francisco. Consult your lucky number and tell me what I'm talking about. It's a fortune cookie. It is a fortune cookie. The exact origin of the fortune cookie is unclear, though various immigrant groups in California claim to have popularized them in the early 20th century. They most likely originated from cookies made by Japanese immigrants to the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century. The Japanese version did not have the Chinese lucky numbers, as you could imagine, and was often eaten with tea. Do you remember on the Great British Bake Off when the contestants had to make fortune cookies as a technical? Yes. And they were like, I don't know. I don't know what this is supposed <laughs> they had to, to like, look like. Fold them while they were hot and like rest them glass. over the edge of a glass. It was so They were stupid. like, I, why would I make this? <laughs> but it was just very funny because yeah. it's like they had never seen it before no. or something. And yeah. all of Americans, they were pirating the episode. Yeah. We're like, what do you Come mean? On! It was probably the same episode where they were like, chocolate and peanut butter. That's why would anybody ever put that? together and then steve and i scream at the television we won world war ii for you <laughs> sorry england i do we don't mean that but seriously chocolate and peanut butter it's the best combo okay <laughs> question number two in 2007 frank langella won a tony award for playing a distinctive real life but very dead character in a two-man interview-based play he went on to play the same character in the movie version and garnered an oscar nomination what is the name of this slash play and film I'm glad you didn't ask me which character he played. Oh. Uh, it was Frost Nixon. Yes. Uh, just as an FYI, Frank Langella played Nixon. <laughs> and Michael Sheen played broadcaster David oh, Frost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they played they played the same characters in both the play and the mm-hmm. movie versions. And it's very good. Um, Michael Sheen has the best, like, pained smile face. Like, yeah. Uh, um, but it's a great movie. I highly recommend. Okay. Question number three. This famous tax evader and gangster was held at Alcatraz for a time and gave regular Sunday concerts with his inmate band known as the Rock Islanders. Who is this sneering prisoner? Al Capone? It is Al Capone. He had a band? Yes, he played the banjo. (laughs) Yeah. uh, The Rock Islanders? The Rock Islanders, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, prison's boring. Um, He was there from 1934 to 1939 and was transferred to Terminal Island in Los Angeles because his syphilis had gotten so bad. Well, Um, make sure to check out our episode 53 heading to the big house for more on Alcatraz. Question number four. This singer, songwriter, rapper, and record producer, no word on if he's ever surfed, blew up in 2012 after his solo debut, Channel Orange, debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 200 and won a Grammy for it. His long-delayed sophomore album, Blonde, came out in 2016. Who am I talking about? That's Frank Ocean. It is Frank Ocean. Little information about Frank Ocean. He came out as bisexual before Channel Orange came out, saying, quote, I don't know what happens now, and that's all right. I don't have any secrets I need kept anymore. I feel like a free man. Numerous celebrities publicly voiced their support for Ocean following his announcement, including Beyonce and Jay-Z, of course. Of course. Uh, members of the hip-hop industry generally responded positively to the announcement, and Russell Simmons wrote a congratulatory article in Global Grind saying, quote, Today is a big day for hip-hop. It is a day that will define who we really are. How compassionate will we be? How loving can we be? How inclusive are we? Your decision to go public about your sexual orientation gives hope and light to so many young people still living in fear. Which is lovely. That's nice. Um, the name Frank Ocean is not his real name. Mm-hmm. It's reportedly inspired by Ocean's Eleven. So there you go. I love it. Yeah. 
Uh, question number five, within 10 years, when was the great San Francisco earthquake? It was one of the worst and deadliest earthquakes in the history of the United States. 1908. Excellent. It's 1906. Okay. Good job. Um, it struck the coast of Northern California at 5.12 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18th, with an estimated moment magnitude of 7.9. <sighs> High-intensity shaking was felt from Eureka on the north coast to the Salinas Valley, an agricultural region to the south of San Francisco Bay Area. Devastating fires soon broke out in the city and lasted for several days, and as a result, up to 3,000 people died, and over 80% of the city of San Francisco was destroyed. Yeah. The death toll remains the greatest loss of life from a natural disaster in California's history and high in the list of American disasters. It's crazy. Crazy. Question number six. True or false? Director and puppeteer Frank Oz is the voice of my favorite Muppet, Pepe the King Prawn. Interesting. Hmm. Do you know Pepe? Pepe? I know who Pepe is. Pepe yes, Braun? I'm trying to I'm trying to envision the other voices he does to mm-hmm. see if that is falls into his realm. I'm going to say no, he's not Pepe. You are correct. Um Pepe the King Prawn is Bill Beretta, who also does Bobo the Bear, and he also uh has done Dr. Teeth after Jim Jim Henson died. <laughs> Uh, Frank has plenty of work, though. He's the voice of Miss Piggy, mm-hmm. Fozzie Bear, Animal, and Sam Eagle in The Muppet Show, and Cookie Monster, Bert, and Grover in Sesame Street. He is also known for his role as Yoda in the Star Wars series. And check out more about the history of the Muppets in our episode number 34 about Jim Henson, entitled The Original Muppet Man. And that is our second <laughs> plug of the month for The Original <laughs> Muppet Man. It's a good episode. Question number seven. A lot of pithy, snarky quotes have been attributed to this writer, an official angry old man. But in fact, he never actually said the following. Quote, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Who am I talking about? Is Mark Twain? It is Mark Twain. (laughs) Uh, Listen for more about our fave cranky bastard in our episode number 41 entitled angry old man you know that's how i got to it because yeah i was like who else could we be plugging that's yeah. an angry old man exactly uh question crotchety of, crotchety crotchety for Sorry. sure <laughs> crotchety uh question number eight name this electrifying bad boy of american rock who produced nearly all of his 60 plus albums over the course of a 30-year career both solo and with his band the mothers of invention in 2004, Rolling Stone ranked him at number 71 on its list of 100 greatest artists of all time, and in 2011, at number 22 on its list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Is there any chance that it's Frank Zappa? It is Frank Zappa. Thank God, because I couldn't name anybody else that's a musician. Yeah, whose first name is Frank? Yeah. Yeah, me neither. Uh, <laughs> um, that's why there aren't any others um, <laughs> on this list. Uh, he was a multi-instrumentalist musician, composer, and band leader. His work is characterized by, quote, nonconformity, freeform improvisation, sound experiments, mer- musical virtuosity, and satire of American culture. Uh, Zappa composed alternately rock, pop, jazz, jazz fusion, orchestral, and music concrete works. And he died in 1993 of prostate cancer, which is so preventable now. Mm. Gentlemen, please check your prostates often and frequently, especially after 40. Can I mean, you do that yourself? No, I mean, you can't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have one. We're not doctors. No, we're not doctors. But have a, a, a medical, professional. medical professional check your prostate. And it's only uncomfortable for a moment. Better to keep you alive. Question number nine. San Francisco has had a long 
had a LGBTQ plus friendly history. It was home to the first lesbian rights organization in the United States called the Daughters of Belitis and the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California, Harvey Milk. It also has one of the first and most famous gay neighborhoods in the U.S., which Fidel is probably mad about. What is the name of this symbolic gayborhood? It's the Castro. It is the Castro. So the Castro, it's mostly concentrated in the business district that is located on Castro Street from Market Street to 19th Street. Castro Street was named for Jose Castro, who was who died in 1860, who was a California leader of Mexican opposition to U.S. rule in California in the 19th century. And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name four famous songs, and you're going to tell me if Frank Sinatra made them famous or not. Okay. Number one, Fly Me to the Moon. Yes, that's Frank Sinatra. Yes, that's Frank Sinatra. Number two, Volare. No, that's Dean Martin. That is Dean Martin. Number three, My Way. Yes, that's Frank Sinatra. That's him, but Paul Anka wrote it. And number four, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. That's Tony Bennett. That is the beautiful and talented Tony Bennett, who is also a very prolific uh, painter. Oh, he has painted Lady Gaga nude. I believe it. Yeah, I mean his they wife's were friends, the, right? Yeah, they're good friends. They they recorded a whole like jazz album together. Right, it was beautiful. They went on tour, and then he's she still let him, alive. Oh yeah, he's still alive. Tony Bennett's doing great. Another one that needs to be kept protected. <laughs> Keep Tony Bennett alive, everybody. So yeah, that was awesome. Some Spain and some San Francisco and some Franks. Great, I like this trend of. Let's yeah. Let's, let's turn keep the quiz this. around. Bad top, really tough topic. Fun quiz. <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Remember that uh, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and please rate, review, and subscribe. Please tell a friend. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So that's it for us. Can't <laughs> bet you're excited for next week. Oh yeah, get ready. Uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.